2: comes out on July 1st, and it is truly a labor of love. I hope you'll pre-order, order, order, and join me on tour as I go across the country. You can find out more at zibbyowens.com or bookendsmemoir.com. And you can follow me on Instagram at zibbyowens because I always post about everything. Enjoy the show. Hampton Sides is the author of In the Kingdom of Ice, The Grand and Terrible Polar Voyage of the USS Jeanette. Hampton is the author of the best-selling narrative histories Ghost Soldiers, Blood and Thunder, Hellhound on His Trail, and, again, In the Kingdom of Ice. His most recent book, On Desperate Ground, was named a Best Book of the Year by the Washington Post and is under development for the screen. Hellhound on His Trail, about the murder of Martin Luther King Jr. and the hunt for his killer, was the basis of the acclaimed PBS documentary, Roads to Memphis. His journalistic works have been frequently anthologized, and he is a two-time National Magazine Award finalist. He's now at work on a book about the fateful last voyage of Captain James Cook, which we discuss. Also, starting May 20th, 2022, is the inaugural Santa Fe Literary Festival, which anyone who is near Santa Fe should definitely check out. We discuss it on this podcast. There will be many other people. Hampton Sides is going to be in conversation with John Grisham, and other participants include Margaret Atwood, Joy Harjo, John Grisham, as I said, Sandra Cisneros, George R.R. R. Martin, Emily St. John Mandel from Station Eleven, and many more. And Hampton will be talking about his book, In the Kingdom of Ice. Authors explore issues at a time of extraordinary change in politics, race, immigration, the environment, food sustainability, and more, as the festival will offer good old-fashioned storytelling. Walking tours in the famous historic town with delicious food tastings are part of the package of this debut event, which I am so sad that I cannot attend this year, but I definitely want to put it on the calendar for next year. The festival is a destination event not to be missed. The fiscal sponsor is the 501c3 Fractured Atlas, and their founding partners include the City of Santa Fe, the Independent, and the Independent Español. Collected Works Bookstore, the Santa Fe Public Library, the Whitner biner Foundation for Poetry, Table Magazine, the New Mexican, and the Authors Guild. By the way, they are also giving away two tickets for seven stage events. To see more about the festival, have a look at all of the amazing events at sfliteraryfestival.org. Again, that's sfliteraryfestival.org. And listeners to this podcast, if you want to enter the giveaway for two tickets to this event starting May 20th, 2022 in Santa Fe, uh, email info at zibbyowens.com and just write giveaway or Santa Fe, and we will randomly select two people. Thanks for listening. Welcome, Hampton. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss In the Kingdom of Ice, and also your career, and also the, liter- the Santa Fe Literary Festival. So welcome.
3: Oh, thank you. Great to be with you.
2: That was a mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we originally were connected through the festival. So tell me more about it. I know it's the inaugural year. There's a whole slate of amazing guests coming. Tell me about your involvement. I know you were a fellow or something for one year. So tell me all about it.
3: Well, uh, Santa Fe, you know, is a little hit town here in the uh, desert southwest. And, uh, and yet we've always prided ourselves on being a place that artists and bohemian folks and musicians and especially writers come to to uh, maybe to get away from the rest of the world and to dream up all kinds of great novels and poems and screenplays and novels and so forth. So it seemed like a no brainer when it when the idea came came to the fore a couple of years ago to create finally a Santa Fe literary festival that would really bring together some of the greatest writers in the in the country if not the world to celebrate this peculiar spot here uh, the the in the in the at the foot of the rocky mountains that um has this long history of, of letters. But then COVID in, interrupted the plans uh, for two straight years. I, maybe it was even three years. And so finally, it's coming together. And this year, we're, we're going to have, uh, let's see, we have John Grisham coming. We have Margaret Atwood coming. We have Colson Whitehead coming. Of course, George R. R. Martin, who wrote Game of Thrones, lives here in Santa Fe and will be a big part of the festival. Uh, on and on it goes. Just a kind of a, an embarrassment of riches for this first year. We'll see how it works. In, you know whether this will sustain itself. I believe it will. And I, I think the the objective of this is to, to put this festival kind of like on a par with a handful of other major events like this that are in the West, particularly the Sun, the Sun Valley Writers Conference Mm -hmm. and the uh, Aspen Ideas Festival. Probably those are two that spring to mind to celebrate, you know, uh, letters in the Southwest, but also Santa Fe cuisine. And, uh, you know, there's going to be all kinds of uh, field trips so that participants can get out and be with authors and have a little bit more intimacy than just, you know, some giant festival. Like, you know, there are a few in the country that are huge, but they've almost gotten too huge. Mm-hmm. There's very little sense of of where you can actually meet with with writers. So I think that's the the goal here is to make this kind of a heavily curated and but very very intimate small scale festival, but with with large scale ambitions in terms of the the quality of the people that um, are going to be coming. So that's it in a nutshell.
2: Can anybody sign up to come? open to
3: the public, public, you know, there are fees for these events, of course. And, you know, it's, uh, depends on your level of, you know, how, how, how deeply you want to get into it. But, uh, yeah, and and my involvement has just been mainly to, to to rope in some writer friends of mine to to come to Santa Fe. It's really not a tough ask usually to get people to get on a plane and come to Santa Fe anyway. And John Grisham's a friend of mine, and uh, so I'm going to be interrogating him on stage about his career and uh, his most recent book. So it's going to be it's going to be a great it's going to be a great event on so many levels.
2: I know I, when I heard about it, I was like, "Ooh, could I make this work going to Santa?" Fe? I've actually never been to Santa Fe, it's it's on my wish list of American cities that I have yet to check out. Anyway, so it's May twentieth to twenty third, twenty twenty two. Everybody should go.
3: Very cool. Please, please come, and um, we'll we'll have plenty of chili here for any, for anyone, uh, whether it's red or green. And uh, you know, and this is the first year. We'll see. I, I think it's just going to get bigger and bigger as the years go by.
2: So cool. I've always sort of wanted to start my own literary festival, which is, I know, pie in the sky dream, but you never know. (laughs) Anyway, a lot of work. Yeah, that's the that's the issue. Well, maybe I'll. I don't know. Anyway, it's very cool that you guys are doing this, and I'm sorry I can't be there this year, but I want to come one of these years because it sounds amazing. Okay. In addition to your role of festival starter most people probably know your i knew you because of ghost soldiers which i read um, when it came out a while back and loved it and i still have it i can't find it but i have it somewhere prominent because i see the cover all the time so i feel like it might actually be in my mom's house anyway i see it all the time so i feel like this is such a treat it's just for that you <laughs> know I actually listened to part of this book, which was really neat as I was boffing around New York City, listening to, you know, ice flows and former mag- newspaper editors and people stranded and and all of that. So it definitely made my made my walk from drop off a little more exciting. Can you can you tell listeners a little bit about your latest project and how you stumbled upon this story and and why you felt compelled to share it?
3: Well, in the Kingdom of Ice is a story that I kind of found out about through kind of through the back door. Kind of thing where I got an assignment with National Geographic to write about a Norwegian explorer. They sent me to Oslo to learn about this explorer uh, Fridtjof Nansen and uh, to go to this museum in Oslo called the the Fram, which is dedicated to this amazing vessel, the Fram, that uh, both Nansen and other Norwegian explorers uh, used to do all all these exp- exploits during the age of exp- uh, heroic age of exploration, and. When you go to the Fromm Museum, you keep seeing references to this earlier expedition, an American-led expedition that tried to reach the North Pole by sailing to the North Pole, because there were these, at that time, uh, rather crazy ideas that there was a warm water basin at the top of the world. Uh, You had to get through the ice, but then there was going to be almost like a bathtub of warm water, then you could just sail to the North Pole. Obviously, Mistaken science. There, a group of Americans in 18, starting in 1879, tried to do just that, and their ship drift got caught in the ice, drifted in the ice for two years, and finally the this ship was crushed by the ice and sank to the bottom of the Arctic Ocean, and these 33 men and their 40 dogs were stranded very near the North Pole, but uh, they didn't make it to the North Pole. Uh, now that it was just a question of their own survival. How are they going to make it home? And and that. So so I kept seeing references to this Jeanette expedition, this American-led expedition in in Oslo, and uh, because this uh, Norwegian explorer Fridtjof Nansen basically tried to duplicate the American expedition, but to, to do it in a di- differently designed vessel, a vessel that he thought could withstand the pressure of the ice, because uh, it was clear they were drifting in the right direction. Generally speaking, the prevailing currents and the prevailing flow of the ice pack was was bringing them to the North Pole. I won't belabor the story of Nansen. That's a whole nother chapter. And, the, 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 you know, there's endless appeal, I think, out there, I found in writing this book, uh, for these Arctic tales of woe. And, uh, you know, it's like there's just people out there who can't get enough of Shackleton and the Endurance and, you know, uh, Nansen, of course, and, you know, all the different American attempts on the North Pole. There's something about the hardship, the kind of monotony uh, of the of the landscape, the uh, just being stripped down to the elements. And, of course, the classic themes, scurvy, mutiny. Uh, <laughs> Cannibalism, you know, <laughs> you know how these guys survive against all odds. Of course, often they don't survive. That's uh, the big question. And, I, and of course, with this book, I, I don't exactly say when you open up the jacket and you read the flap copy. I don't say what happened to these men because. And this is really why I wrote. This is the finally the answer to your question. Why did I? No, yeah,
2: take your time. This why is did so I write
3: this? Is that I felt like this is a story that should be kind of in the national shorthand of uh, heroic survival stories. Uh, mm-hmm. This is the American Shackleton story, and why wasn't it uh, well known? I mean, why? Why? I mean, if you asked people, you know, hundred people uh, on the streets of there in New York, have you heard of the U- uh, voyage of the USS Jeanette? Probably you know, like. Three of them maybe have heard of it. It's a very obscure tale. And yet in its day, it was front page news, international news. Everyone knew the names of these voyagers for almost three years. There was, you know, basically a vigil, you know, of when will these men return? Will they return? Or, uh, did they die up there? Where are they? It's like sending men to the moon, of course, when back in those t- times, there was no way to communicate. So for all those reasons, I thought it was just a great classic story you know, gilded age uh, story of 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 survival, essentially. And, you know, this was a time when America was beginning to finally emerge from the devastation of the Civil War and begin to kind of flex its muscles on the world stage and compete with the European powers uh, in various ways. And, 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 you know, this was partly a scientific expedition. It wasn't uh, just an adventure. Uh, They were trying to prove all kinds of scientific and pseudo-scientific theories. And so it was just kind of an interesting time where you begin to see a glimpse of modern America. All of this uh, is is happening at the same time. A newspaper publisher, who you alluded to earlier, James Gordon Bennett, who was uh, the publisher of the largest newspaper in in the world at that time, uh, the New York Herald. He personally bankrolled this expedition, Um, even though it was run by the U.S. Navy. It was paid for by this eccentric dude uh, from New York who um, nearly stole the show. For me, when I was writing this book, I, I became so infatuated with this eccentric playboy you know, multi-millionaire guy, uh, who um, you know he had sent Stanley to find Livingston in Africa, and had had this huge blockbuster newspaper hit with with that series of stories, and he was looking for another adventure to bankroll, to really just to create great copy for his newspaper, and uh, it's, yeah, just it's
2: as strange. opposed to uh, the animals escaping the zoos and all of that.
3: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 he he uh, he was into. Um, he was not above creating um, Drama. you know yeah dramas on the page that were not exactly true just to prove some kind of weird point or eccentric idea that he had but anyway the, for all these reasons i just i just thought it was this fascinating story that i thought everyone should know about in this country and and of course they you know i i think also there is this thing that a lot of historians yearn for or fantasize about and that is you know finding an obscure story that was important and consequential in its day mm-hmm. and resuscitating that story and hopefully bringing it back to the level oh, where you think it ought to, ought to be, you know, sort of in the pantheon of, of, of tales uh, of, of American history.
2: Now, you communicated that so well in the book when you were saying like, this was the event of the summer. Like this is what everybody was doing is hanging on all of these updates, right? And it's hard to believe sometimes that the things that we all collectively find so important Right, and that grip our attention, like an election or this or that, and that in a hundred years is something nobody's even going to remember. And somebody's just going to have to dig and say, "Oh yeah, you know, this was like a really big deal at the time." <laughs>
3: yeah. It's, it's, yeah.
2: It, it makes what we're going through now put get put into more perspective.
3: Yeah, yeah. You know? Now most of the story takes place in Russia, and um, you know I think that our relationship with Russia back then was very complicated and weird, but actually friendlier, on friendlier terms, uh, much friendlier terms than than it is now. I, I went to Russia, I went to Siberia to research the book, which was a really fascinating trip in and of itself, because, I mean, this was w- where they finally made landfall, dragging the these small boats across the ice pack, and then finally sailing across um, the Arctic Ocean. They made landfall in this really, really remote part of uh, Yakutia, um, Siberia, which is 400 miles north of the arctic circle and uh, just to get there it took you know like a a week of of you know planes trains and automobiles to finally get to this spot and that was a big part of the story actually for me also was to just to physically go to these places where these men um so i'll tell you this some some make it home they don't all make it i'm not going to say who makes it and who doesn't (laughs) uh uh it is just you know you know, you think, well, they, they finally made it to open water and they're getting into their small boats to sail across, the, the, you know, th- their journey is basically over now. They're, and then you think, okay, they're making landfall. Now, they're, now their ordeal is over. No, no, their ordeal is just beginning and uh, winter is starting to arrive and they're starting to freeze to death and they have to fend off, you know, polar bears and, you know, they have to hunt for their food and the, it just goes on and on and on. So, uh, the, uh, you know, that that's, I guess, another aspect of the story that really appealed to me is that, you know, it just has all these phases, you know, of of suffering. <laughs> it's like suffering porn, I guess. <laughs> uh,
2: <laughs> I feel like, though, you're drawn to this, right? A lot of your stories are about getting through what seems like unbearable misery for for yeah. a human to withstand. Where does that come from?
3: I I really I really don't know. I, I don't think I personally am that sort of person. I and mean, you know I'm not that I'm not some, someone who likes to test uh, you, you know test myself physically but I you know I came before I was a historian I worked for a good number of years for a magazine called Outside, mm-hmm. uh, and Outside, when we were uh, when I was an editor there, you know, we were always looking for these kinds of stories um, of you know survival stories, um, but also just that theme of sort of what combination of traits. Are people able to summon to get through an ordeal of some sort? Mm-hmm. You, know, uh, you know, what kind of leadership qualities do they have? What kind of maybe a sense of humor to get through a situation that is obviously not funny? Or so that's a theme that keeps kept coming up there, and I, I it, it probably sort of through osmosis I, I picked up a lot of that, and but it I mean it is a it is a kind of classic theme. It's like I. I I'm always wondering how I would have gotten through an or- ordeal like this, and I think the readers are too. As they turn pages, they're thinking, "How would have you know? How would I get through that?" And and what combination of attributes do I have within me? You know, sometimes to your own surprise, you don't. Often these guys they don't know they have this. You know, and it's what's also interesting is that almost invariably there's some some guy way down on the pecking order. Mm-hmm. Who emerges as the real heroic person? It's not necessarily the officers. Some of my books are set in war, and uh, that's often true. Is you know the real heroes are the grunts sometimes who never knew they had it in them, and they then they find out under under pressure.
0: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today.
2: This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes we all have stuff we need to get off our chests. Even if we don't think it's interfering with our daily life, there are some things you just haven't processed, be it grief or trauma, eating disorders, anything Visit betterhelp.com slash moms don't have time today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp h e l p pcom com slash moms don't have time. Sure. Is there has this happened to you? Has there been a situation in your life where, you know, you you didn't know how much resilience you had until you were faced with it?
3: I suppose so. Um, but I'm you know, nothing on the level of the the books that I've written, you know, where I've never been in a survival, like a dire emergency survival situation like that. But
2: sometimes it takes though these extremes, right, yeah. to get us out of something that we're struggling with ourselves in a way, right? Like yeah. most of us will never have to face thing. I mean, knock yeah, wood here, but most of us will never know what it's like to have to, you know, find our own food in an ice block or whatever. But there are certainly challenges we face every day where it's hard to get through or we're not sure how. And I think mm-hmm. looking to situations, you know, I feel like I'm drawn to memoirs, right? Where people get through all these hard things like mm. abuse or addiction or whatever, like I'm drawn to those stories. Cause it always makes me, it inspires me in a way because whatever I'm going through, I'm like, well, I'm not going through that, but look at that. That was, that was really extreme and they got through it. So that's helping me in like whatever silly thing I have to deal with, which doesn't feel silly to me, but you know what I mean?
3: Right. Well, I guess I, you know, I've been drawn to a number of these stories my Ghost Soldiers was was which you say you, you read a long time ago, uh, was about the Bataan Death March, which is mm-hmm. one, of, one of the worst chapters in American uh, military history. Yes. Uh, the, the surrender at Bataan and the death march t- leading to these prison war camps that were squalid and horrible and you know, run by the Japanese and, and how they how these men survived. All of that, only to face what seemed to be an imminent execution uh, by the Japanese, and so the Americans found out about this and sent the U- U.S. Army Rangers in to uh, try to rescue the last survivors of the Death March. I, mean, I guess that theme is is there in that book, as you know, yeah. as well. So, you know, maybe I maybe maybe it's uh, you know, looking back over, I've done now six of these. That theme is. Is present in almost all of the books that I've written. So uh, different versions, different iterations of it. But yeah,
2: you can you can just take this back to therapy this week and see what you can make <laughs> of it. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm <laughs> kidding. Um, I was looking though on your website before, and to your point about the Baton Death March, and I mean, I just sat here like staring at the men who are so emaciated, the uh-huh. prisoner. I mean, it's it's hard to even imagine like that level of suffering and just staring at what becomes of a grown man's body. You know, it's like similar to Holocaust pictures and, you know, there's yep. just this yep. something gruesome and you can't take your eyes off it as you try to wrap your brain around it. But mm-hmm. anyway.
3: Well, and you know, the other joy, the real joy of doing that book and, and some of these other books that I've done uh, is, is getting to meet these guys, you know, mm. into their lives as they're looking back at, and trying to ask again these same questions how did i get through that how, why did i survive and so many of my com- comrades didn't and you know the, the the grace and the stoicism that most of them had you know i'll i'll take that with me for the rest of my life you know and unfortunately most of them have passed on almost i'm sure all of them have at this point but uh, that was one of the greatest experiences of my Writing career was getting to, to know these, they call themselves the battling bastards of Bataan. And, you know, and these are tough, these are tough dudes. And,
2: uh, <laughs> well, it's one thing for you to, resuscitate so many of these lost stories or highlight well known ones and from a historian's perspective. But it's another to then be able to write them in such a vivid, captivating, sort of propulsive way as if we don't know the ending of these things where you sometimes you just know the ending already. So how did you get into that part of writing? Like how did you hone that skill? Is it practice? Did you like, did you know you wanted to write? Did you know more you just wanted to tell the stories and writing came after? Like how did writing itself fit into your career trajectory and make you into this? Yeah.
3: Well, um, you know, I guess academic history has uh, often quite well-deserved reputation for being deadly dull, (laughs) Uh, you know, chloroform in print, you know, it'll put you to sleep real quick. Most academic history, most, uh, I, I, so I went to Yale. Um, I went I think to Yale too, did, and I I was a history major, and I, I don't regret it. It was some of the some of the greatest, you know, it was one of the great history departments in the country. I'm, uh, but I don't really remember, like, the word pleasure being mm-hmm. often ascribed to um, the reading of history, the writing of history, uh, the kind of history that we were taught to in our the thesis papers or you know to, to write it was kind of more legalistic writing it was like come up with an argument come up with mm-hmm. a thesis and then summon your data to uh, prove your thesis and build tw- your argument towards a summation that really you know proves that your thesis was absolutely correct and then you might even go in personally and defend your thesis and in front of your professors and, and you know that's kind of a legalistic I mean it's almost like law but lawyers took over the history departments of America a long time ago, forgetting that there's all these other kinds of writing, the other ways of, of telling history uh, that are should be at least equally valid, you know, narrative being the one that I seized on, I, I guess, you know, like it's, history can be really interesting to read if, it's, if, it, if, if someone pays attention to the way it, it's written. And not just the you know, do you have the data? Do you have the facts? Do you have the argument? Do you have the provocative thesis? Uh, but just you know, like all the qualities of that make uh, for a good novel or a good screenplay or a good piece of drama on stage. You know, some of those kinds of qualities. You know, apply them to the raw stuff of history, and then you end up with you can you know you end up with a, a beautiful narrative that reads sometimes. At its best, like a novel, but happens to be true, and so I, you know, weirdly, I, I think that. When, so I grew up in Memphis, and um, the first writer that I ever met was a narrative historian, and he was one of the best. He was, um, he was, he was this um, Civil War historian named Shelby Foote, who wrote this massive trilogy of the Civil War, and was the kind of the star on the Ken Burns documentary, uh, you know, on the Civil War. Uh, with the beard and the pipe and the amazing Delta accent, uh, and uh, his son uh, Huggy and I were friends, and we were. Oh, like, I know him. You know Huggy?
2: Yeah, I went Who to dinner. I know him. Um, I went to dinner um, at my friend Lee Carpenter and Elliot Ackerman's house, and he was there.
3: Yeah, yeah. Well, we're good friends, and uh, we were in a band together. And we oh were my
2: gosh, up. stop! Too funny. And we were
3: like trying to uh, do everything we could to prevent. Uh, his father Shelby from actually writing the trilogy of the Civil War by by cranking up the Hendricks and the painful <laughs> or, 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 you know but anyway, but I got to know uh Shelby in high school and then and then after college did a series of interviews with him and you know I think he was enormously influential in terms of explaining what this sort of Sub genre is, you know, of narrative history where you know you don't have footnotes, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you don't necessarily have an argument, a thesis. Uh, I don't. I I think you'd be hard pressed to figure out what Shelby Foote's thesis was of the three, uh, three, two thousand page, you know, trilogy. Other than he wanted people to turn pages, he wanted people to, to. It was interested in character, primarily character development he was interested in plot he was interested in like things like foreshadowing and you know uh highlighting an event that happened you know in 1861 and then somehow building in a crescendo towards things that happened at sort say Appomat- Appomattox. and uh, so you know these are things that were uh, kind of rubbed off on me it's like oh the the stuff of history can be you know can be literature at least can aspire to be literature and uh i don't know that i'm not saying i've always succeeded at that but i've always aspired to that and um so i think that's where it came from okay. combination of uh yeah i mean yale was um oh my gosh some of the greatest lecturers some of the great some of the the greatest characters on uh who uh in that history department but um i didn't I didn't love, gosh, I hated history papers. I hated Mm -hmm. that that argumentative style. I hated expository writing. I I guess I was, I spent all my time in college actually working on campus newspaper, like the Yale Daily News and and a a magazine called The New Journal, uh, which Mm -hmm. I was the editor of. So I guess, you know, I was always straddling the fence between am I, you know, am I a journalist or am I a historian? And I think even today, I think of myself as a journalist who writes about history as opposed to just a historian which i don't know a lot of people say you know you can't even call yourself a historian unless you have a phd uh in history i you know i don't buy that but there is that school of thought so um, i don't
2: talk i don't talk to those guys <laughs> and then quickly what are you working on now are you on at work on another adventure yeah.
3: uh well my 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 most recent book actually is um was a book uh, about a battle in the Korean War called The Chosen Reservoir. And that came out, it actually came out two years ago, just before COVID. I timed it just right, I think. But um, now I'm working on a book about the third voyage, the final voyage of Captain Cook, James Cook. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not Captain Hook. That was (laughs) was the pirate. And not Captain Crunch, who is one of my favorite captains. But Captain Cook, um, who in his third voyage, I uh, was given this assignment to go f- try to figure out, you know, it's, it's taken me right back to where the Jeanette story took place, which is, you know, Alaska and Siberia. He was trying to get up and over Alaska or through Alaska and find the Northwest Passage. And, of course, he didn't find it. All he found was ice. And he nearly got caught in the ice twice. And um, but along the way, he stumbled upon this island. Called Hawaii that was not on any maps. And so he was the first European discoverer of Hawaii. And so when the ice nearly trapped him in Alaska, he decided, I got to go back south and winter somewhere warm. Why don't we go back to that lovely place, Hawaii? And he did. And of course, he was murdered. In Hawaii, by the native Hawaiians, and uh, so it's another sprawling adventure story, I guess, uh, with a uh, pretty resounding and controversial ending. It's been weird working on this book because Cap- Captain Cook, like so many um, white dude explorer types from from the colonial era, um, is being canceled all over the world, and statues are c- coming down or being vandalized. Um, you know, he's kind of persona non grata in New Zealand now and Australia and all over Polynesia, of course, uh, somewhat for, you know, some somewhat understandable reasons, although Captain Cook was really an explorer. He, you know, he was an explorer and a and an, you know, relatively enlightened explorer and one of the greatest navigators of all time. But exploration is generally viewed uh, as the, the first wave of colonialism. You know, you got to find these places first and put them on the map, which he did, and, and then what came after Cook uh, is a whole nother story of, you know, uh, but anyway, so um, I'm working on this, this thing. It's, it's, uh, I've got a zillion books here behind me. I've been reading and traveling. Uh, this, unfortunately, is a project that has required a lot of hardship travel to places like Tahiti, you know, all over france so Holland, sorry for you. Hawaii, uh, New Zealand. Someone's got to do it. And um, Turns so out that that too. <laughs> During COVID, uh, I've been, you know, between lockdowns and so forth, I've been uh, having some pretty interesting trips in the wake of Captain Cook.
2: Oh, I can just see that whole trailer. Not (laughs) Captain, not Captain Cook. Anyway, my seven-year-old son could make you a really fun, fun trailer for that if you wanted. Well... I'm sure that your panel at the Santa Fe Literary Festival with John Grisham will be amazing. And that sounds like a totally unique opportunity. So if any listeners are going to be in Santa Fe, March 20th to 23rd, when is your actual panel? Do you oh, know? No, May,
3: May, May Sorry,
2: right. May. Oh my gosh. Yeah. May. Yeah, I can't speak. May 20th to 23rd. Anyway, Hampton, yeah. thank you so much. This was really fun. Thanks yeah, for chatting right. with me. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks.